Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Season four. Season four. What you have just heard is our in-house band called Mannequin Uprising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Playing our new intro. So you'll be hearing that tune a bit. And it cues you to know that you've got the right show. It's the right show. <laughs> Welcome to season four. You know, I wanted to give a shout out to a couple of listeners. I found out that my friend Jasmine has an 11 year old boy. His name's Luca. Like, I obviously knew that already. And I found out that Luca listens to the show. And Jasmine's not all that into horror, but they have listened to a few of the <coughs> things. I guess, like from last season, they listened to the Hitchcock episode and a couple of other ones. So the ones he's allowed to listen to and the ones that mom doesn't get too freaked out by they listen to and i just wanted to give them a shout out because i did not know they were out there listening and i very much appreciate that they are it was awesome i I like when i hear kids getting into this we're going to talk about an event we went to we saw a lot of young kids in the horror scene yeah yeah let's talk about it right now there is an event that we went to put on by midsummer scream and it was called awaken the spirits and it was in the middle of august here in los angeles and let me just say it was a lot of fun it was a pop-up event so normally they have a lot more planning i guess that goes into this event but honestly it was massive to me we went to pasadena that's where the event was and It was COVID, you know, during COVID time. So we had to wear a mask the whole time. But people had some really cool, fun Halloween masks. There were amazing, fun Halloween masks, right? Like themed masks that people were, you know, spicing up their COVID situation. But yeah, it was hot out. We had to wear a mask. When you're in the event, you had to keep your mask on at all times. There were people that would tell you to put it on if you you didn't. Because this was a big event where people were mingling. Yeah. Did you have any reaction to that for you, like mingling at this juncture with so much human flesh? <laughs> um, I thought that they spaced it out well. Mm-hmm. And I think most people, as far as what I saw, were very respectful of the restrictions. And I think that when you are in a like crowd of meaning people who are really into, I mean, Everyone there was into Halloween, into horror. Yes. And so I think everybody was in that energy and we had all missed Halloween so much with really kind of missing it last year, even yes. though, you know, I, we, many of us celebrated in our own way because it's, we can't miss it. But no, no. so I think that most people, and maybe this is just my projection. I don't think many people were even thinking about the fact that they were wearing masks. They still had food. You could have, there was alcohol, there was coffee, there was food, you know, and people would find the little corners and drop their masks and eat and put them back on. Yeah. And I think, I mean, ideally we'd love to get to a place where we don't have to do that again, but if it allows us to be in that energy and everyone was just celebrating horror and Halloween, it didn't really bother me. No, it didn't bother me either. I just know that some people are having a difficult re-entry time, yeah. like going to big events. Yeah. I've, had, I've had clients, I've had people that I know that just the idea of doing that freaks them out a little bit. Sure. And then maybe they do that with someone they know and they get freaked out a little bit and there's mm-hmm. more anxiety and panic. But I've been out of the house for quite a while now going to work and stuff. So yeah, I didn't have that reaction. But either way, I, I want to say... And I've say, traveled too and yep, stuff. Yeah, me too. So... so. We're out and about, and I know a lot of people are as well. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure people across the country and the world relate to both scenarios, like both being freaked out in some places and other places have been out and about for a really long time. I mean, California is starting to crack back down a little bit. It was was interesting. I was doing a real briefly, not to digress too much, but I was doing a, a CEU live webinar yesterday and the speaker who was really great, but she was like, you know, once we all get back to the office and I know that most of it, and I'm like, 
I've been that. You know, she was talking like no one's doing in-person therapy anymore. And I'm like, mm. uh, I still have an office and have a pretty good yep. show up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I thought it was interesting. That was the assumption. It's really just like, okay, where yeah. does she live? And I guess she's not doing it. She's LA. Yeah. But yeah but it was, anyway. Yeah. I mean, so yes, we have my whole point in bringing that up is everything you're saying, which is, I think there's both sides and everything in between of how much people have been out and for people who have been more isolated, it is much scarier the first time you go to something like that. Yeah. I just really think it's about exposure (laughs) to it. The other thing I would say about this was when we walked into that big hall where all of the exhibitors were, I was really impressed at how much there was. Now, Mm -hmm. honestly, it's, it shouldn't come as a shock because of course, most, you know, 90% of the people in that hall are cottage industries, right? You know, people like you and me creating stuff, Mm -hmm. artists and selling it. And Mm -hmm. so those kinds of people make bread and butter online, but bread and butter at these types of events, you know? Oh yeah. So having events like this to go to again is probably having their business survive as well. Absolutely. So I was happy to see that and also slightly overwhelmed. It did take us two days to get... (laughs) And people were, I mean, people were selling a lot of stuff. I I went home. I'm going to give a shout out actually to this company. Sure. I went home after finding, I I like really fun sort of vintage type clothing. And I found one of the vendors there and all of these, like Shannon was saying, all of these vendors are, many of them are like mom and pop shops. And so I really like to support that. Do you remember the, the shop that had the, the sweater with the cat and the, the stripes? Yeah. 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 So I bought that sweater, another sweater, and then a, a vintage Halloween pillow from them and their oblong box shop. You can find them on Etsy or you can just Google them and they are really amazing. If you like that kind of vintagey 1960s, think like the Queen's Gambit type mm-hmm. style clothing. That's cool. Um, but they do everything from like horror to vintage. They have Halloween stuff. And I bought a couple of their sweaters to support them and a really cool like buy, sold, die cut Halloween pillow vintage and yeah i found some really cool shops that i i love there's another one plague rat that does really great jewelry boxes so if you go on to the midsummer scream awaken the spirits app you can find all the vendors and really take a look there's some i i really like supporting absolutely and i kept a lot of the card we picked up cards and postcards and stickers and different things from different people and i picked up stuff that i liked and i have it all here in a little pile and i definitely intend on over the coming months going on experiencing their site trying to support them because i i definitely believe in small business yeah so if it's horror and i want to do and we do our part like Mm -hmm. you mentioned the oblong box shop here we do our part to let you guys know so that you can support them as well if you like their stuff right yeah like i bought some disney stuff this guy making disney themed stuff so much haunted mansion stuff stuff. yeah that was really cool of course. It was great. I saw this one t-shirt that said Disney goth. I was like, hey, yeah, yeah. my people. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> also, I would say we went to a few of the main stage things. We did not spend a lot of our time like sitting and listening in the main stage, but we did go to two or three different main stage shows. One of them was about private haunts, like doing a haunt in your home. Yeah, and these people have like grown them over the years and they become like really professional. Yeah, so local to LA and the LA area. So Orange County, Ventura, Ventura, Los Angeles counties. Those are the three counties that really are around here. 
and the different home haunts is what they call them. And they had two or three different panels on it. We only went to one, but there was like another panel with a bunch of other people, most likely. And so supporting your home haunts in your area, that's a, that's a cottage industry that, you know, people like you and me are deciding to have a haunted house and then building it all out. Right. And they have their own set of social mores and their own kind of code of edict of what they do and what they don't and how they do different things. And we learned a lot about it, mm-hmm. which I thought was cool. And it really opened my mind to the fact that we can all go out into our communities and find these really very creative people who are doing these home haunts that just love Halloween. Yep. So why not? Right. Yep. Like go That's support really cool. them. We also went to the Halloween Horror Nights one. We watched, uh, they, they discussed a lot of the engineering and, and literally how they, you know, this is one that Shannon and I go to every year. We do the VIP pass and really dedicated to this one. It's always been one of my favorites. Just And they had a couple of the different engineers there that were talking about how they build this from the ground up and the amount of bodies and minds that uh, contribute to all the different facets, everything from the blueprints to the actual engineering to directing and producing and painting and casting and and they literally work on it all year and they showed uh, as a as an example one of my absolute favorites, which was the the classic Universal Monsters. Uh, a few years ago, when Shannon and I went, they had the classic Universal Monsters. It was like a castle in a sense, but at every level, every area uh, was dedicated to a different one. So the biggest one was Frankenstein's lair, his laboratory, and how they had the the lightning bolts, and they really, really go all out. So they showed how they they built that from the ground up. And that was really cool. Yeah, super amazing. That was a lot of fun. I attended, you might have already left. I'm not sure. Did we attend the Ventura County event one together? No, but we did do uh, Dark Harbor together, Dark and that Harbor. was that Talk was about really that fun. a little bit. So Dark Harbor, oh man, and I, I will, I, I know that this is like blasphemy to people who live in this area. <laughs> I've actually never done this one, and I kind of want to do it this year. And after hearing them speak about it, I, I'm even more intrigued because obviously, if you if you're familiar with the Queen Mary, there's so much haunt and ghost stories and there's a room that people were never allowed to sleep in and now they're refurbishing it and it's going to be a room that people can sleep in and the cast is even like we don't even go in there (laughs) but what I think intrigued me the most was more from a performative place where they talked about some of these characters that they had been developing over the last you know five to seven years and I had no idea that they had such a script and it's very like cabaret style I mean it's very just like theatrical the the costumes and it's so elaborate and the fire breathing I mean it's really like walking into a really dark circus and they had really great videos showing how they built the characters and even some of the actors that had been on the cast. The main woman on stage was the one that had played like the ringleader or whatever for so many years. And she, she came out as awesome. Herself. She seemed amazing. She was great. You know, looks like a normal lady in person. And then yeah. they showed all the art the and all makeup's the pictures. The makeup's awesome and the costume. I mean, that for that alone, and then obviously going getting to go to the Queen Mary, we're very fortunate here in Southern California because we have the movie studios, we have these big elaborate things that people know how to make sets out of. It's just, we're very fortunate. So that one was really cool to me too. Very cool. And then I'll just say that I went to, there is now going to be a 
outdoor, I don't know how to call it, experience. <laughs> it's like a walkthrough in Ventura County Fairgrounds, and it's their inaugural year. So it was really interesting to hear the creator and the people who, just the two people that were there putting it together. They were very transparent. They're like, yeah, we don't know, because first year, not sure. You know, mm-hmm. they were very, it was great. They showed the art and how they got into it and, and what they were going to do. And and people were asking some questions and, and they were sort of very clear with, we're not exactly sure how everything is going to go, but it's outdoors. It's a walkthrough. There's lots of spooky things. There's a like a train thing and there's a this thing and a that thing. And you can come and not pay anything and hang out in the front area and eat and drink and whatever. And then there are experiences on the grounds that you pay for and you can pay one fee for the three experiences they have, or you can just do one or do the other, whatever that's kind of blocked out like that first year though. So they were sort of saying, Hey, you know, if you had been the people that went to Halloween horror nights the first year and you'd win every year, wouldn't have that been cool? Like if you had seen when they're, you know, the impetus for the origins and how they built it up. She's like, so come and see us where it's our first year. So that was pretty cool. That's cool. We also have tickets for Oogie Boogie Nights Mm -hmm. at Disneyland, or it's actually at Disney's California Adventure and Halloween Horror Nights. And then we'll see what else we get up to. Yes. Yes. So the next thing we'd like to do. Oh, Kathy had an event actually that you wanted to mention. Uh, I just wanted to mention because I like to find the ones from all over. There is one called Fright Kingdom. Mm -hmm. This is in New Hampshire. It's known as New England's Scariest Haunted House. Nice. It says, nominated by USA Today as one of the best haunted houses in the country. Largest haunted house in New England. It's 40 minutes from Boston. It has five haunted houses at one location, including zombie soldiers, creepy clowns, and a haunted manor. Mm-hmm. It's in the month of October. So if you go on to FrightKingdom.com and you live in that area... I'm sure you've heard of it, but if you haven't gone, maybe check it out this year. If you have gone, it's happening again. Yeah, right on. Perfect. So this next segment is a little segment we like to call... <laughs> Brilliant. You're such a singer. And now you're going to torture me with things. I think for those people who have been with us for a while, this is going to be a little bit of a change. But if you're new to the show and this is the first episode you've listened to, this is the part where we do some horror facts with Kath. So we're going to we're going to change it up and we're going to make it so you can play along. Obviously, this is not live, so you can't call in or anything like that. But we're going to give you some time to think about it or if you want to cheat, look it up. But more importantly, this is going to be a time where Shannon actually puts a little bit more thought because she's not going to tell me the answer right away. I'm going to ask her between five and six six questions. She's going to write down what she believes the answer to be. And then at the very end of the show, she's going to tell me what she thought the answers to the questions were. So if you listened to the previous seasons that where we did this, I would usually choose a movie or director and I'd give a bunch of facts and then she would try to guess it. This is different. This is going to be a little bit more like trivia, although you will get some horror facts out of this where it's going to be different questions that are, that are not necessarily related to one another. So let's start. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Shannon name three of the first 10 celebrity guests 
on Scooby-Doo's original series. So we're looking at 1977 and 1978. It, re- it only ran for two seasons. Oh, wow. The original series only ran. It's been done so many times that people think, when you think back on Scooby-Doo, you think that there were multiple seasons because it's been done so much, but it was really only two and two solid seasons. I guess they must have done specials or something. They've done a ton. The yeah, done so a that's ton. why you think there's more. So this is the, I'm talking three gotcha. of the first ten celebrities from the '70s. Okay, got it. You have three. Yeah, you take your time. <laughs> Not really. We, but I also don't want mannequin dead uprising. While I think about mannequin it. uprising. We might have to get a little Jeopardy theme music. That's not Jeopardy for this. <laughs> yeah, the house bands didn't work on that. <laughs> I'll just go. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe. Okay, go ahead. Number okay. two. Number two. <laughs> In what year mm-hmm. did the U.S. produce the first filmed version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Mm. Did the U.S. produce the first movie? Okay. Yeah. Got it? Yeah. This one I gave to you when, when, when we went to see this, so hopefully you remember. <laughs> That's the flaw in your well, system. Well, it was two days ago. Yeah. Again. Jordan Peele studied at Sarah Lawrence College, where he majored in what subject? Okay. Got it. Number four. How long does a human head remain conscious after decapitation? <laughs> I'm laughing about decapitation. This is my life. Okay. (laughs) It's scary. The answer, by the way. How long does a human head remain conscious? All right. After decapitation. That's funny because in the movies, of course, they like decapitate you and it's like a dead head and like eyeballs like you're dead. Yeah. Okay. Number five. So we have six on this one. Number five. What is the most powerful weapon in every slasher film? Think outside the box here. The most powerful weapon. Or something that might be weaponized in horror films. Okay. According to who? The horror gods. <laughs> it's I, just I a, can't believe you've got them on speed dial, those horror gods. It's, it's general knowledge for anybody who's a horrorphile. Okay? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Number six. We all feel this way. <laughs> uh, you will when you know the answer. Number six. Yes. What was the original title? thought of for the texas chainsaw massacre all right so all of you hopefully some all of right. you are playing along or effects with kath thank you very much so here's what is going to happen for the rest of the show for everyone to know our next segment is going to be about britney spears and her conservatorship a bit of a true crime situation. We both watched the documentary Framing Britney Spears, but we're also going to speak about her mental health in general, what we know about it. Also, what is conservatorship? Some updates that have recently happened in the last month or so. And Kathy's going to dig into competency hearings, which is a part of Britney's story and something that Kathy has a lot of knowledge about. So we're going to do that. Then we are going to do a horror Well, I actually have one book that's not horror that I read, but we're going to do a book segment. So we're going to talk about a couple of horror books we've read recently. We're going to talk about a couple of other books that we've both independently read and some book stuff. So we're going to do a book segment, which we're really excited about. I don't think we've really ever done one of those on the show before, but that's going to be a regular around here. And then we're going to do all of our horror watches. And we're going to do some psych news, horror news, event news, etc. And then at the end of the show, 
you will get the answers to that's correct after all the meat we will give you dessert and dessert is the answers we shall be right back with britney spears Hey there, we are back on the show today. We are going to talk about the Britney Spears doc, Framing Britney Spears, but also, of course, as we usually do, extrapolate out into conservatorship, Britney Spears case in general, and also just thoughts and feelings and from the psych world about this. So I did want to give a little bit of information about the Britney Spears documentary that just came out from the New York Times uh, company and Left Right Productions. It's called Framing Britney Spears. It came out in February of 2021, directed by Samantha Stark. The distributor is Hulu, but I also know you can see it on FX, and I'm not sure if it's on Hulu still or what have you, but it's, it's, it's available out there. So people close to Britney Spears or conservatorship reassess her phenomenal career as she battles her father in court. And so there are interviews with insiders like lifelong family friend who traveled alongside Britney Spears for much of her career is interviewed in it. The marketing executive who originally created Spears Image, a lawyer working on the conservatorship for Jamie Spears, which is her father, and the lawyer that Spears tried to hire in the early days of the conservatorship to challenge her father, but then was not allowed to use. So all of those people are interviewed. Of course, Brittany's interviewed and has a lot of voiceover work in it as well. And... I had not watched it before deciding to do this episode. I know that Kathy had watched it a while back and had mentioned it to me, and that's actually why I sought it out. And I enjoyed the documentary. I didn't know a lot about the case. I had known what happened to her in 2008 and, and a lot of her very public, what seemed like a public mental breakdown at the time. So I had certainly been, you know, working in L.A., you know, crossing paths with her, with her actually at the time. So I sort of knew all of that, but I didn't know all of these kinds of things. And I certainly didn't know that she was still under conservatorship and what had happened to her since then. And so I know a little bit about that. I, I just have a lot of reactions to this, and I'm going to try to keep this factual, but I am going to talk about a case later in our psych section that really speaks to how different these cases can go mm-hmm. and how in some cases, it, especially for Brittany being in the public eye and having a conservatorship, how that, how much that soiled her reputation and set her up for failure because the conservatorship was, you know, they can say that she agreed to it to a certain point. Mm-hmm. However, by, by her having a conservatorship into her adulthood, it automatically puts her in the position in court to have to prove why she does not need it anymore. Mm-hmm. So she's put in the situation of holding what we call the burden of proof, right? In the case that I'm going to talk about later, and these are very personal cases to me because this is a lot of what I get hired to do to discuss whether, you know, a, a child should remain with a parent or if there's been abuse involved and how it's not coming up and things like that. So the case that I'm going to talk about later obviously not directly related, but how much of what was going on in that case and how this child was allowed to stay with homicidal and abusive parents. So this case astounds me because we have a, a young girl who goes into this industry 
very talented, completely used, exploited, hypersexualized, controlled by, at that time, probably numerous men, one being her father. We can even go as far to say that people like Justin Timberlake exploited her. Kevin Federline exploited her. That some of the early questions she even got on Star Search when she was a young girl was, do you have a boyfriend? So everything was about her sexuality. And she later to only be, have to be apologetic for it and somehow have to explain it. And somehow that would be related to her mental health and stability, which I think is just so incredibly devastating. So when we saw Britney back in 2007, what what the media had described was a quote-unquote mental breakdown. And so one of the things I hate about the media is that they use these really heavy definitive terms. They don't have any mental health training. They'll make these broad statements about mental health. And so, you know, describing her behavior as erratic, at one point attacking a car with an umbrella. Prior to that, she had sh- shaved her head. But no one had discussed what she was going through at the time. First of all, at in that incident, we were having incredibly provocative paparazzi that were pushing her to the brink. And no one knew that she was actually suffering from postpartum depression at that time. Yeah. You know, Brittany was very, very famous in the 90s. And so I think for the public, what happened was super famous, super sexualized. A lot of people had a lot of judgments, of course, like we do about famous people. And we don't really know what's going on with them, right? So then 2007 or so comes along, and she had really been out of the public eye for a while. She had not had big hits, I think, for a minute. And so what ended up happening is when she had this very public, what they called a breakdown at the time, because there was a lot of erratic behavior getting caught by paparazzi. And paparazzi aren't as, I don't know, they were just becoming, in the 90s and the aughts, they were incredibly a part of our community in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I don't feel as if they are anymore, but I know they are Yeah, not as much. But they just don't seem as influential Mm -hmm. as they were. But in 2008, she had a very public attacking the paparazzi's car with an umbrella, obviously Mm -hmm. under a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. She had had, like you said, postpartum depression and she shaved her head very publicly, which was really just a statement. Screw you and my femininity. That's right. Hair, long hair is often associated with femininity. Well, and, and, and sorry, I might be really stretching here, but this is the same way. I mean, this historically, this is how we looked at Joan of Arc. And Sinead right? O'Connor. Yeah, I mean, I mean this it is, goes back. Yes. And so how she was over-pathologized from yes. that simple thing and those factors coming together, we created this narrative of she had bipolar disorder, she was unstable, she was all of these things. Well, and you know what? This is in our horror culture too. I'm going to just throw this out there. But yeah. one time I was watching, there was a movie I was watching, I don't even remember which one, and the it was a horror movie and, and the girl shaves her head and then goes off the deep end and starts killing people or whatever yeah. it was. And I remember uh, saying to my friend at the time, like, oh, there's one of those tropes. Shave your, the girl shaves their your, their head. Watch out! Yeah, shit's coming down. Yeah, that's a trope in horror movies. So yeah, no, for sure. Here we are, and so nobody's mentioning the paparazzi that intentionally triggered her trauma, intensifying that already. You know, she had the sold out reputation. She was the butt of many jokes, and and I think that. Brittany is the perfect example of the community society empathizing with her too late. Yeah, and 
I want to make clear that neither you nor I know what was going on behind the scenes with her, but I do know that this all ended up in her being on a 5150 hold, like mm-hmm. a psychiatric hold, involuntary. She was assessed by whoever, police usually. Mm-hmm. These days, unfortunately, it's usually police on the scene because we don't have enough money to have mental health workers on the scene these days. Mm-hmm. Although some cities and states in the country have crisis teams, and I've worked on a crisis team before but the funding just isn't there so she was put on a hold and went to a psychiatric hospital and eventually ended up being in a conservatorship situation with her father yeah which she was originally from my understanding she was originally not didn't have a problem with the conservatorship and just said she didn't want it to be with her father (laughs) Right, and then that's who they gave it to. That's who they gave it to. Like she didn't. uh, She knew she needed help at the time. At least that's the way it's portrayed in this documentary: is that she knew she needed help, but that she just didn't want it to be with her dad. So maybe we should talk a little bit about what a conservatorship actually is. Mm -hmm. A conservatorship, for those of you who don't know, is a legal arrangement in which a court appoints a representative to make decisions on behalf of the conservatee. Brittany would be the conservatee, and her father would have been the person deemed by the court to handle her affairs. It's usually with the cognitively impaired due to dementia, intellectual disability, or serious mental illness. It can include all kinds of things. It can include everything from the rights to make medical and financial decisions to controlling basic life choices, like who you marry. If you're allowed to have kids again. Whether to have sex, marry, contraception, which became part of Brittany's situation. She wanted to have another baby and was not allowed to take her IUD out, this kind of thing. What I what I do want to say is that in California, there are two types of conservatorship, as I understand it. And I'm not a lawyer, but this is this is what I understand, is that there is a probate conservatorship, which is primarily designed for individuals with intellectual disabilities and dementia. And this is what Britney Spears had. Uh, they're granted indefinitely. So here's the really important difference is that they're granted indefinitely by the county probate judge, though the conservatee can petition to end it. A subset of probate conservatorships are known as limited conservatorships, which are reduced in scope and reserved for adults with developmental disabilities. So what the, I think the important thing to know is there's this one kind of conservatorship that's the probate one, which is what Britney Spears had, and they are granted indefinitely, but they can petition to end it. So that's an important piece. Then by contrast, there's something called the Lanterman Petrus Short Conservatorships. Those are three names strewed together. They're designed for people with serious mental illnesses or, or who are gravely disabled. And they, you know, they can't provide food, clothing, or shelter for themselves. These conservatorships are also decided by county judges, but they have to be renewed annually. They get their name from a law from 1967 that was proposed by Lannerman and Sens, who are Republican Assemblymen people. Oh, there's a couple of other names in there. There's a bunch of names. The the names I mentioned, the Lannerman Petrus Short Conservatorship, those people, they're Republican assemblymen that created it. And it was really established strict criteria for involuntary treatment, basically, and mostly for people who are gravely disabled from serious mental illness. But they are renewed annually. In other words, they have to be, to continue, they have to be proven annually because people get better. But also because they didn't want to pay for it forever and ever. 
is usually. So these two different kinds of conservatorship are interesting because they're they're apples and there's kind of apples and oranges are they're meant for different things, but both types are involved like public guardians, private professionals, family members, etc. The thing about it is that there is a lot of controversy, especially about the second type of conservatorship, the one that you have to renew every year because it's a very, very big thing to be put under conservatorship, as you know. You're losing your civil rights, your liberties, your autonomy, and there aren't a lot of statistics, but I do have... I I do have a little bit of statistics about this. So according to the State Department of Health Care Services, this is self-reported data. (laughs) So let's let's know that. This is why the statistics are not awesome. Is 1,459 people were on a temporary Landerman Petrus short conservatorship in 2019 and 2020. Now this, like I'm, I'm just talking about California because this is where Brittany lives and where her conservatorship is. And 3,672 were on permanent conservatorships. But again, that data is flawed in in a lot of ways, but it gives you an idea of the scope of it. There's a lot of controversy in the mental health world about conservatorships because they can both be incredibly helpful because there are people that need to be conserved. I, in fact, just in the last couple of months, know a kid who's 18, seriously mentally ill, needed to be conserved. And he's now getting the support that he needs with supportive living and housing and food and and all that. And then there are people like we're talking about, like Britney Spears, where it seems like a a controlling money grab on the part of her father to put it, to put it too fine a point on it from the outside. That's what it looks like. It might have started with some kind of like she needed help and he wanted to help her. You know, relationships aren't black and white and I'm not in their relationship. So I don't, I don't really know, but what I what I do want you to pull out of this as we go forward, because Kathy's going to talk about competency hearings and stuff, is that what we found out in June when Brittany made her very public statement to the court, she finally made a statement in a hearing about wanting for the conservatorship to end. And she had never done that before. And what I think you need to hear is that what she said in that statement is that she was unaware that she could petition for its ending. And she sort of did this whole, like, I apologize for my ignorance type of thing. I think she never looked into it because of her PTSD and, and all the situation that she's grown up in. Like, I don't know. But she she admitted, she said, I didn't know that I could petition. I think it's really interesting to hear that. I just did an interview with the Marshall Project this past week, and they're a, an organization that utilizes, that, that emphasizes uh, social justice in mental health. And they had interviewed me because I had done numerous evaluations for conditional release programs. And they'd asked me why I, I had left, and I had talked about the amount of warehousing that happens with individuals once they've been deemed dangerous due to a, you know, a mental illness or, or whatnot. And when we were talking about all this, I said, you know, so many of these individuals were not let into what their rights were. 
And they had been led to believe that if they did not adhere to the system that was allowing them to stay out of the hospitals, that they would be penalized more and things like that. So I don't know all of the odds and ends of her case, but my guess would be that this was a combination of traumatic bonding with her father, as well as keeping enough information away from her and the people who were quote unquote caring for her, making it sound like they were doing her a favor rather than addressing what was causing the the psychiatric distress or the holds or what they saw, said is saw as a mental instability. And this is something that I'm so familiar with in the work that I've done in the past and just watching the warehousing of this. And then people just, you know, I would even say to my patients, have, do you ask your psychiatrist why you're on these meds? Because they're so institutionalized. I say the same thing. Right? And they're like, no, yep. I said, know exactly what it's doing. Yep. Know why you're taking it. And so when I think of what you just said, of course she didn't know she could get out of it. If she knew she could get out of it, she would have done that 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I do the same thing. One of my assessment questions is actually, so what medication are you on? Yes. And I ask, and I assess kids. What are you taking? And I always ask them whether they're 12, whether they're 16. I mostly, right now, currently, I am assessing a teenager. So pretty much the youngest is 12. And I can tell you something. They almost always know. Yeah. They know what their meds are. and But the part they don't always know is I say, and what does that do? What's that for? That's right. And they almost always kind of know, but don't. And so they're programmed. Exactly. And I always have experienced Brittany as a little bit younger Mm -hmm. than her chronological age. And so because of the way she grew up and having to be a, a worker, a worker so early and so young that a lot of that, you know, development may or may not have happened. And so she just may be coming to the knowledge a little bit later, that emotional knowledge or that, that advocacy because she was kept from it because she was kept from it. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have to, when you don't have autonomy, when you're a kid and you don't have to learn how to make all those kinds of decisions on your own and start to develop that analytical thinking and all of that stuff that we have to do, when we aren't taken care of in that way, mm-hmm. yeah, it just it it, just, it it allows you to come off as a little bit younger than your yeah. chronological age, for sure. Yeah. So I think you were going to talk a little bit about competency. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna break this down in two ways. I I see this case as just multiple failed systems that completely failed her, her family system, the court system, the entertainment industry. This is it, this whole case is incredibly devastating to me. So when I look at even recently, the judge had called for they had first stated that it was a, um, they were going to assess her competency. And when I looked into it a little bit further, I was I was really curious about that because there's nothing that indicates that she would not be competent to stand trial. So what does it mean? The standard for competency to stand trial in the state of California is the defendant has a sufficient present ability to consult with her lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and whether he or she has, or they have a rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against them. So this would be, you know, under the case law of dusky, the dusky Mm -hmm. standard. Okay. Okay. So what we're talking about here is, is this someone who knows why they're in court, what their case is about, and they are, are they able to speak meaningfully and understand the facts of their case with their attorney. Okay. So when I f- initially heard that they were going to do competency, 
I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Clearly, she doesn't need a, a competency evaluation. But when I looked further into it, so I'm not sure if this actually took place or not, but what did take place was the idea that they weren't quite sure whether she was competent enough, which is not usually the term that we use for this. That's why I was confused to still be the the, the primary caregiver of her children. Mm. Okay. Right. So what we have in the state of California and other, and other, and this is what I, I tend to go to court. And so I will say very transparently that I have a bias on 730 evaluations because 730 evaluations are, tend to be incredibly biased. They are oftentimes very poorly done. Custody evaluators are pressured often to award 50-50 custody, even if one of the parents is an abuser. Mm. They're discouraged from talking about personality disorders in 730 evaluations, which is very problematic. Mm -hmm. And they tend to over-pathologize the victims, and they tend to make justifications for those who did the harm. So what happened was they called for a 730 evaluation. So my heart sunk when I heard this, Mm -hmm. because these are the evaluations that I look at that private attorneys give me, and I go, well, that's wrong, and that's (laughs) bias, and that needs, and you need to depose this person and ask this question. That's a lot of the work that I do. So the fact that we have an individual who has not, as far as we know, hasn't demonstrated, at least it's not public, Mm -hmm. she hasn't demonstrated any neglect or abuse or any reason to believe that she's unfit as a mother now is being asked to undergo a 730 evaluation. They're now taking it to another level. This is no longer just about whether she should have conservatorship. Now they're even bringing in whether she should have custody of her children. So it just, we've taken this one young girl who's now a woman and we've dissected her life publicly. And, and the one thing we have not done in this entire case, except superficially is ask what people have been put in place that have allowed it to get to such a place that this, I see Brittany as a victim, regardless, regardless if she played parts in this and maybe she wasn't always stable. I'm not suggesting that she's the healthiest person on the planet, but what we're not discussing, and this is what comes up in these cases all the time is who got her here Mm -hmm. and why aren't we addressing that. Why aren't we addressing the fucked up system that controlled and destroyed her? We're just focused on taking her rights away and now potentially her children. So it, it, this is where it just, it blows my mind. And when I talk about this case later in the episode, a very different case, it's like how (laughs) these are apples and oranges. Yet this little boy was able to stay with his parents who were blatantly destroying him. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's sad, you know. I feel and, like, you know, they did this documentary that's obviously been shooting over the last couple of years, and 2019 was when she finally had this statement to the court that she'd never had before. Mm-hmm. Or actually, sorry, uh, in just in June of this year, she had this statement. Now, in 2019, there was, you know, I think they were reviewing it or something, and then now there was this documentary, and I don't, of course, know the exact events correlation but i do know that in june she made this statement and by august uh you know we're september 1st today but in by august jamie spears who is her father's name agrees to step down from the britney spears conservatorship which was 13 years 
of this, but here's, here's a few things about it. You know, in Brittany's statement, she talks about how all the different things that were sort of done to her and how she wasn't allowed to have, she wanted to have another kid and she wasn't allowed to be taken off birth control. She was, uh, put on lithium and it made her feel drunk and drugged and you know it wasn't the right medication for her because she may or may not be bipolar and as we know if you put somebody on lithium that's not bipolar they have a very very bad reaction to it drug very potent drug i've had people go to the hospital that were misdiagnosed and put on lithium so it's it's not something you want to diagnose it's not something you want to administer lightly. And I have no idea if it was the right drug or not, but that was what she had said. Mm. There was a lot of financial benefit that her father got from this. He was paying himself monthly fees. He was taking 1.5% cut of his, the gross revenues and merchandise earnings for the, for the Las Vegas residency that she had, which was about $2 million. He allegedly took 2.95% commission on Britney Spears' Femme Fatale tour in 2011, which would have been about $500,000. He was reportedly paying himself $16,000 a month and $2,000 for office expenses. And that's actually $2,000 more than his daughter, Britney Spears, receives per month from her estate. So there was a lot of stuff. Yeah. That was going on. And so as of uh, middle of August, he apparently, and then, and then her, in her June statement, she said that she might sue her family. You know, she sort of said a lot of stuff about like, this is obviously not right. I've, I finally come to mm-hmm. consciousness about this and I, I might sue my family for this because obviously I've been taken advantage of and, and abused in this way, et cetera. And so now, you know, Jamie, Spears lawyer sort of talks about this is parts of the statement are like no actual grounds for suspending or removing him from the conservatorship have been found. It's highly debatable whether a change in conservator at this time would be in Miss Spears best interest. You know, this kind of lawyer mm-hmm. speak, right? Like we don't, we're not wrong. Is the way, yeah. I, like, I read a, I read a couple articles. We're not on, copying to it on the, these male attorneys and just saying like, Oh, you know, to, to, it, this is not a mistake that she's had a conservator and well, she's this is uns- actually yeah. a woman. I'll just stop. Oh, you. okay. This is the, yeah. Jamie Spears lawyer. He was smart and got a woman. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and also probably getting paid, you know, not hand stupid. over fist, not stupid. Knew yeah. he needed a female. Mm-hmm. So, and then she goes on to say, nevertheless, even as Mr. Spears is the unremitting target of unjustified attacks, he does not believe that the public battle with his daughter over his continued service as her conservator would be in her best interest. But also I want to make clear that they do. They also say as part of the statement that he's saying he'll step down when the time is right, but the transition needs to be orderly and include a resolution of matters pending before the court. So that he gets like his cut. Basically. So they're going to drag it out, <laughs> but he's publicly starting that. Hey, if you want to, if you want to end this, okay, great. You know, fine. It's up Trying to, to you. look magnet up mm-hmm. to you. It's always been up to you. Mm-hmm. I love you. And mm-hmm. there's a statement about, I love you and I miss you and yep. all that stuff. So, yeah, yep. Oh, golly. So m- more to be revealed. So there was also, I will say in recent news, there was also, there was a petition to buy on Britain on behalf of Britney's side of things to expedite the hearing on this, which would have maybe happened later this or in August, I guess. And so now it's going to happen in September. 
but it's, they said, no, we're not doing it early, basically. And so in September, they're going to do it. So we will follow up in part of our like news segments, I guess, on the ongoing case. Cool. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening to that. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. So this segment on the show, we are going to talk a little books. And we're going to start out by talking about World War Z and oral history of the zombie war. So this is by Max Brooks. And I do want to say that we have a book club on our Patreon. And this is the, one of the a choice by one of our patrons who goes by 452 is his nickname. He chose this book, and so this was our book read. What we do on there is we usually pick a book a month, but for this one, because it's big, but also because it was a summer and everybody was busy and lots of vacations and stuff, so we just elongated it out over a couple of months and read World War Z or World War Z for you foreigners. Let me just read the quick synopsis here. The zombie war came unthinkably close to eradicating humanity. Max Brooks, driven by the urgency of preserving the acid-etched firsthand experiences of the survivors from those apocalyptic years, traveled across the United States of America and throughout the world from disseminating cities that once teemed with upwards of 30 million souls to the most remote and inhospitable areas of the planet. And he recorded the testimony of men, women, and sometimes children who came face-to-face with the living or at least the undead hell of that dreadful times. The entire book is interviews with fictional people that survived World War Z, the zombie war. I don't remember how many pages this book is, but it was a monster. I have it here. It's uh, 342. Oh, okay. Seemed like a lot longer. Seemed like 687. (laughs) Seemed like a lot longer. So I will start out by saying a few things about what I thought of it. Mm -hmm. One was it seemed like it was really fucking longer than it was. Mm -hmm. Here was my struggle. My struggle was that there was no plot. No, and I, I and I am and I am and and so I have also just read a book called Daisy Jones and the Six, and it is not a horror book. It's a very good fiction book. That book is also interviews, and it has a plot, and it's amazing. Interview with the Vampire. It's the most amazing book I've read in a few while. I mean, like not. I mean, I'm being. I'm, I'm I'm exaggerating a bit. It was really good. But if it's done right, that can be a really cool way to write a book. And so that's kind of what I'm saying. Now, here's also, here's what I know. 452, and there's a couple of other people on the server, on, I mean, on our Discord, that love military books, military, war. Some of them have been in the military, you know. So, So this kind of genre or this kind of talk right like talk about war talk about guns talk being in trenches you know there's a lot of military talk in it there's a lot of political talk in it and stuff i see why people who like that sort of book like this book because they're very big fans of it so i don't want to take away from that mm-hmm. i personally have no interest in that kind of book mm-hmm. and so i struggled with that too it just happens to be a book that didn't change my mind about that but i struggled with the no plot I struggled with not having a ton of, there wasn't a lot of emotional impact for me. Mm -mm. There were a couple of, there were a handful. And I think we talked about what we do in our book club is every couple of weeks we get together and sort of text chat about it in the discord, like how it's going. And 
I there were five or six stories in there that I really that I enjoyed. There was like a female pilot I think we talked about. There was a Japanese story that I really liked. So what you get is different interviews and, and the, the space one was kind of cool. The space the one was cool, super cool. Yeah, for sure. You're absolutely right. So there were a handful of ones that I enjoyed because what you're getting is a bunch of little stories all throughout. And so a few of them were good. But unfortunately, when they're not good, then then you're reading for like 30 pages or 15 pages. You're reading something that you're not enjoying. The female pilot, there was one on a female pilot. There was one on the South Korean guy I really liked. But what it felt, what it felt like was that the first chunk of the book was, was I was okay. It still felt I a felt little like that too. The first yeah. chunk. Yeah. yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. that you had that reaction because when I look back over the whole thing, I'm like, you know, I was okay. That first chunk, maybe the first third or something, I wasn't really tracking it, but I felt pretty good about it. And then I feel like it slowed way down and it started to be the same story over and over and over. And I got so bored. It just felt repetitive. And then it became a slog to the end. What are your thoughts? Uh, you... <laughs> took a lot of them right out of my mouth so i will i agree i agree we agree (laughs) i agree with you about the military stuff i don't want to no pun intended shoot anybody down who who likes right uh, everybody has stuff different things but i said this to 452 and and some of you others on the discord when we talked when we had our last meeting about the book was when i want a horror book and it's supposed to be about a zombie apocalypse. And there's a mention of about three zombies in 342 pages. Don't call it World War Z. Just call it the apocalypse or something. And the zombies were a metaphor for a virus. And so it was really hard for me to get through because after that first chunk, like what you were talking about, I couldn't tell who the fuck was who. And all of the stories seemed like it was coming from the same emotional narrative. And like what you were saying is there wasn't, it was not character driven. I didn't care about the narrators. I didn't care about their stories. They all seemed, it was very surface. They were all like rugged and tired from the war. And they had to go through this stuff to kill a zombie that they talked about one every 150 pages, we would get a story of a zombie. It's called an oral history of the zombie war, Max. (laughs) And there's no fucking zombies in it. Um, So when people say it was so much better than the movie, at least the movie made up for it by having 500,000 fucking zombies. Yeah, there was like some so, funny CGI I mean, with zombies running it wasn't, everywhere. You know, World War Z wasn't the movie of the year, but at least there were zombies in it. So, I, you know, I, I read some reviews. I went on and read some reviews that people had left about this being such a profound book and all this stuff. And I'm like, it just didn't move me at all. And yeah. I was like, can it get... There's no climax. There's no plot. Unless you're listening to the audio, you don't know one narrator from the next. And they had to spice it up so much that they had to find celebrities to do the voices of people on the the audio. It just, I don't know why he got so much attention for this book. Yeah, the, the reviews are very polarizing from what I could tell. You either really, really loved it. Like we're talking about, there's a couple people that are patrons of ours that are in the book club that really, really love this. You know, what we could recommend, because this was his recommendation, 
and I've seen this in the reviews too, is that there's an audiobook like Kathy was talking about that has a lot of different voices and celebrities doing the voices and stuff, and they're very well acted. I haven't listened to it myself, but I imagine they're very well acted because there's amazing Martin Sheen, et cetera. There's all these amazing actors. So I would say if you're interested in this book, I would say just do the audiobook because it sounds, I mean, from what I've heard, it's very well reviewed. People really dig it. And so take that and just do that and and don't worry about the book because it's not a good first read. I can say like other people have said, oh, I read it the first time, but then the second and third and fourth time, I'm like, why would you read it the uh, second, third, third thing? I'm like, if you, if if you, you say you it, hated it, and you went back and read it again, you didn't hate it as much as I did. Right. Because <laughs> you're like, because I'm never picking it up again. Because I'm never going to read this again. No, and I, I bet I'm yeah. I'm imagining that yeah. friends say like, oh, yeah, but it's really good, blah, blah, blah. Or listen to the audiobook. It's really amazing. And then they go out and listen to the audiobook. And of course, it's really amazing because it's acted really well. Mm -hmm. And you can tell the different narrators because that is one of the troubles. And I did see that in some of the reviews is that Mm -hmm. you... When you're reading it blindly and you don't know anything about it and you're just like, oh, it's the book club selection and I'm reading it, which is what I did, I got lost. I was getting lost. Here's the other thing that may have thrown another added element of just not wanting this right now we're going through a pandemic yeah that completely replicates itself so much in this book right and i'm fatigued by covid and i'm fatigued by the polarization of responses to covid and how so much of it could have been prevented. And so when you read World War Z, which ironically was written well before COVID, which also tells us that scientists have known for years that this was going to happen. The one thing I will say about this book is Max Brooks wrote a pandemic well. He Mm -hmm. did not write a zombie book well. I don't give two shits about war stories. Maybe he wrote that well for people. And I don't mean any disrespect. I have the most respect for people who have been in the military. It's just not my thing to read. So he may have written that well. I'm not a good judge of that because I don't have a a personal tie to that. It's not a good zombie book. But as far as writing about a pandemic, writing about people's responses to a pandemic, Mm -hmm. writing to how out of control it got, so to people who believed it, to people who denied it, to how it started, that is where I will give him credit. And I think that that also was fatiguing for me because I'm so over covid and not, not in a way of like, I'm going to be irresponsible. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm just fatigued by it. Yeah, we all are. So for me personally, I think it was a difficult time for me to read this. I think that's very fair. Yeah. And yeah, we had a couple of people that started the book out with us and then we haven't seen them since. And I, I understand that's probably because it's like, yeah, not too soon. Not right now. Don't really want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I think Blue fair. had read it before and she stopped it. She couldn't get through it again. She was going to reread it with yeah. us and she was like, I'm yeah, tapping out. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. All right. So that's that. So my that's understanding that. is that you, I have spoken about it on the show before, but you have now completed my best friend's exorcism by Grady Hendrix. I'm not going to lie. And Please. I know I get real dramatic when I like something. Mm-hmm. Um, or or not like something. Or not like something. <laughs> like I will. All the opinions are dramatic, Kathy. Yeah. I gave this book such a good review on Amazon. I, this is, if I ever meet, Grady Hendrix at a signing. Yeah. We might have to make that happen. (laughs) This book is in the top five best books I've ever read. 
Oh, and I'm so I th- glad you and liked I it. think that not only is it so incredibly character driven, and obviously I was a kid in the eighties, so there's a lot of the culture pieces that connect for me. It was such a perfect combination of horror, the metaphor of becoming a teenager, and best friendship. Mm-hmm. And how he was able to tie all of that with just enough humor, it was, I, now this is a book I would read over it and over again. Agree. How he writes teenage girls so well, I don't know. <laughs> That's amazing, right? But he writes women well. He did in Horror Store too. He must have sisters or something, but he, he's just such a great writer. But this book, if you, if people out there have not read it, and it doesn't matter what gender you are. It is such a good book. And and at the end, when Ice was like, have you gotten to the part of the feels yet? And I'm like, no. And then when I got to that part, I was like, oh, oh. my God. I was like crying at the end. <laughs> yeah, the feels were totally there. Yeah. How did he do that after like, and then the Lemon Brother? I mean, oh my God. It's it all good. so good. Really good. So it's Abby and Gretchen have been best friends since fifth grade when they bonded over the shared love of E.T., roller skating parties, and scratch and sniff stickers. And I remember when I read this book, and then I told (laughs) Kathy about it, and I read that sentence, she's like, I'm down. (laughs) I I bought it, and I started it, and I couldn't put it down. It was like 50 pages in. I'm like, I should probably go to bed. I was getting texts. I'm like, this is like Christmas. Oh my God. This is like Christmas. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I'm just so happy. I'm so pleased because I've never read a book that was so like, I would, I, within 50 pages, I was like, oh, I have to tell Kathy about this book because every single chapter is named after a 80 song. I will never listen to Phil Collins the same. Just. And there is a Spotify music list for those of you who want to, that I follow that you guys can look up. But it's a lot of 80s. So there's a lot of 80s. And that first, that first, you know, third of the book, they're really pumping that 80s stuff. They really, he really wants you to be in that culture and that feel. And then there's also, of course, one of my favorite subgenres of horror, which is exorcisms yeah. and possession. And they did those scenes so incredibly well. And you know how we were talking about uh, in another book that we read, Mr. Begone, how some of the the scenes went on like 20 pages and you're like, <laughs> okay, we get it. You're still falling. Yeah. <laughs> but in this book, the exorcism went on for a while, but Grady had so many different things going on that it worked. Absolutely. I have come in contact with a lot of horror files that love this book and love Grady Hendrix. And so he just came out with a new one called Mm -hmm. The Final Girl Support Group. So that one just came out. So put that on your list. Do you recommend that I read the other one before that, though? Uh, I don't think it matters. Okay, there's- I'm reading it right now. The other one I'm reading is uh, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. And it's more from the grown up perspective so far, but I'm only a few chapters. in. How is it? It's good. Okay. It's his writing. It's good. It's, okay. I'll order it clips it. along. The The chapters are short. You know, it's, uh, I like all his books. So we had also read in the book club, the book Horror Store, which was also his book. And I really enjoyed that one too. Horror Store was fun. Yeah. It was a fun book and a different, different voice, but definitely his writing. The writing was very similar, but also a fun horror book. And that one really sells it there. The last third of the book too, because I remember us reading that and kind of going like, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? The very good, intense, like, um, 
building the suspense. Mm-hmm. And then the last third of that book, really mm-hmm. like the horror like comes in. It was much gorier than I thought it was going to be. And so it was definitely more than I expected. So I'm reading that now. I also did want to share that I recently I watched Children of the Corn, the original. Yeah. Linda Hamilton. Yeah. And I and then I also just decided to watch 1922, which is also a Stephen King short story. So I watched that movie, which was really good. If you mm-hmm. haven't seen 1922, it's actually a very good one. You okay. know how some Stephen King's. Eh. But 1922 is good. It's a slow burn. But I thought it was really good. So what I did was after watching Children of the Corn, I was like, that's a short story from Stephen King. I don't think I own Night Shift, which is the anthology that it came from. So what did I do? I went on the internet and I bought myself a first edition copy of Night Night Shift. Night Shift by Stephen King, the hardcover. It was actually not that expensive. And it's a pretty good copy of it. And it has the original Children of the Corn story in it. That's awesome. I did read Children of the Corn, the short story back in the day. So I know how different the ending is because so many times this happens a lot for Stephen King fans. The original story has a brutal portion to it. Sometimes it's the ending. Sometimes it's a scene. I always feel like, though, in his books, that's the case. Like, there's always a scene or two, like an it also, that's so brutal that they really soften it that's for the film. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like in Misery, the yeah. hobbling scene. Mm-hmm. The hobbling scene in the book is brutal. Yeah. And in the movie, of course, it's not. So, I mean, it's not it's not nice in the movie, but it's not like the book. Yeah. So anyway, looking forward to doing that, bought myself a copy of that and I'm just super excited. And it's so cute. Cause in the front, it's like previous books by Stephen King. And there's three, Yeah. there's three books. That's there's cool. literally Carrie, the shining and Salem's lot. Mm-hmm. It's like now when you buy his books, it's like previous books by Stephen King. There's like 45 of them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm reading uh, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires first before I read the final Ghost Support Group. I just, I just ordered the final. I just ordered it right now. Yeah, yeah. So I will start it, and we can nice without giving too much away. Discuss. Yeah. Discuss them. Absolutely. Okay. And I'm I'm reading some other books, but we could talk about that next time. That's a little bit about our books, and we're going to have books as a pretty regular segment on the show now because we're both we're both reading that horror. So thank you so much. And it's the time of year. It's totally the time of year. I'm going to talk about a book in the next episode that just uh, her, this author reminds me of the fall. Oh, fantastic. Let's talk about that next time. So on to the next segment today, which we'll, we're, we're going <laughs> to... Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> we're actually, before we get to the answers, we're going to talk about our spotlight watch of the week, which is Candyman and a bunch of other movies we watched and some news. So we'll be right back. I couldn't help playing that one. It makes me giggle. Uh, so we're going to talk about <laughs> Mannequin Uprising. Our band uh, did a little <laughs> thing on like a Killer Clowns kind of rip, like not a rip off, obviously, but just like inspired yeah. by. And that just makes me laugh with the like hard rock riff at the end. It makes me giggle. So now we're going to talk about our spotlight watch of the week, which Kathy and I, we went to the movie theater. We went to our favorite movie theater did. because it's bargain, but it has reclining sleep. It has all the things you want and it's like 16, 17 bucks instead of 25 or whatever. Yeah. So it has the nice seats and the popcorn that Kathy buys, which was bigger than her head. 
And uh, we saw Candyman 2021, directed by Nia DaCosta. Uh, one of the writers is also Jordan Peele and produced by uh, his company, along Monkey Paw Productions, along with MGM, Braun Creative, Universal Pictures, all put together this movie. And the what it is about is for as long as residents can remember the housing projects of Chicago's Cabrini green neighborhood were terrorized by a word of mouth ghost story about a supernatural killer with a hook for a hand easily summoned by those daring to repeat his name five times into the mirror in present day, a decade after the last of the Cabrini towers were torn down visual artist, Anthony McCoy and his partner, gallery director Brianna Cartwright, move into a luxury loft condo in Cabrini, now gentrified beyond recognition and inhabited by upwardly mobile millennials. It's a slick 91 minutes. One of the criticisms of this movie right now is that it's too short. Can you imagine? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know, I've watched some, of, I've read some of the critiques of it and people are saying like, oh, there were some really great things that I would have, I feel like they rushed through. I feel like I wanted more, yeah. which is so interesting, right? Now, I didn't feel that way. I, I thought it was perfect. I thought it was great because I am also someone who's always saying like, can we just have a 90 minute movie? Can <laughs> yeah. we have an edit? Like, did we yeah. need to drag this around? But I, I respect that. They wanted more. They enjoyed certain parts of it and they enjoyed, they wanted wanted it to be an even slower burn mm -hmm. which i which i totally understand yeah. like that's an amazing thing that they they wanted more and so that's great i enjoyed this movie what did you i really enjoyed it i thought that uh, well i just want to say a couple things i loved the fact that he used his puppetry <laughs> yeah um, We've talked about this on the show before and answered one of the questions, which is that was his major yeah. was puppetry at Sarah Lawrence before he went into film and stuff. And the puppetry that he creates through and he sort of uses as the chorus of the film, if we're thinking of like Greek mythology, right, mm -hmm. is it the narrator comes in and then you see these like really like almost like the paper dolls that he uses in us, but in much more ominous way. And it's so flipping creative and unbelievable and then all the different clive barker easter eggs so the the director of the art place his name was clive mm -hmm. and then um burke was reading a novel by clive barker in the laundromat so i thought that was cool he gave a few shout outs that way he totally did um but the movie as a whole and this is where i think jordan peele just is so brilliant is he takes something that is horror but it's a double entendre right like it's terrifying on its surface because Candyman is terrifying and he still uses the origin of the film and he brings Virginia Madsen back in and all of that, that still creates this really terrifying film and gives us a lot of backstory. But then he incorporates the real life uh, social justice pieces in a way that they're palatable, they're digestible. You're not getting hit over the head with it. It's just, it's embedded in there so perfectly that it socks you in the gut. And I remember leaning to you and going, isn't it amazing that this was made pre George Floyd? Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, black community has been suffering far longer than George Floyd, but it just seems so timely, but he does it in such a way that it's just like embedded in there so seamlessly. And I just think he's so brilliant. I do too. And Nia just did an amazing job directing this film. And she was also one of the writers. And I just have so much respect for oh, her because it's incredible because the shots, selection 
the film is gorgeous too. Mm-hmm. So if you if you like beauty on film, if you're if you're a filmmaker or inspired by film visuals, the the shots that she chooses are, you know, I I can see her art, artistry in there because she intentionally continually chooses shots that are upside down and from the bottom up, shots of the sky from the ground backwards. Backwards. Mm-hmm. It, it's very very well shot and well chosen to the story. And I know that there are metaphors and Easter eggs and all kinds of beauty in that movie that I imagine are going to be explicated over the next six months or so. Many articles done, many interviews done. And I'm really looking forward to, to that because with us and get out, I, I followed those movies of Jordan Peele's that he directed. And I, and I learned and learned and learned along the way. And I'm Mm -hmm. really looking forward to doing that. I'm sure this has that too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that the original Clyde Barker story was the council projects in the UK, you know, in London or what have you. And now Bernard Rose, who did the original Candyman film, you know, took that story and moved it to Chicago, added the, the calling into the mirror, you know, that's not in the original story. And also added the, cultural piece of the lynched artist as the start of the urban legend, the the lynching of the original Candyman, the artist, and then that's how this started. And so I'm not going to do any kind of, we don't want to do any kind of spoilers for this movie because it's brand new and we really want you to go see it. It's amazing. I thought it was great. Yeah. It also made $27.57 million worldwide, which was really interesting because it was uh, about 22 here in the U.S. and about five overseas, which is interesting because a lot of like the Suicide Squad and all of these big movies that have been coming out have not been doing amazing in the theater. You know, people are hesitant. But I think it shows, one, how anticipated this movie was. Two, we're ready to, we're, we just, every weekend we get more and more ready to go to the theater. More and more people are going. I think mm-hmm. that is part of it as well. We're just ready. Yeah. Just ready for this. All right, so what else did you read? I mean, uh, watch. (laughs) Um, I watched a movie called Demonic. Violent slaughter occurs in an abandoned house in Louisiana where three college students are found dead. Detective Mark Lewis examines the crime scene and finds a shock survivor, John, before calling reinforcements. Several police cars then arrive at the house alongside an ambulance with psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Klein, played by Maria Bello. She talks to John, who tells her that a seance performed in the house called the attention of many spirits, including one he identified as his mother, and that two of the other group members, his pregnant girlfriend and her ex-boyfriend, are still missing. Okay, kid that plays the the character whose mother died in the house a while back or whatever i i wasn't really crazy about his performance it it i don't know why it just felt really forced to me i did like her relationship with him and i liked the premise of the movie mm-hmm. but i feel like it it felt a little made for tv i felt like i based on her being in it and and what it was about i felt like it it could have been really good yeah and it just started to fall flat and even the end where where everything sort of comes together i'm like Oh, okay. I wasn't like, boom, wow. It didn't like, blow, you know, yeah. um, but there were moments, I mean, there were some, there were some good scares. There was some, it wasn't all bad. It just isn't one that I would be like, I really want to watch that again. Right. So it's like, you're, you're saying it's worth a watch really. Yeah. It's not, it's, I mean, it kept, like I said, it, it kept my attention to a certain degree and I thought the premise of it was kind of cool, but anytime you have those, those suspense stories or those ghost stories where it has a lot to do with like someone died in the house or whatever. Whatever, and it's done a million times. 
I feel like you have to get a little bit more creative because it's been done a million times. Sure. So when it was over, I was like, okay. <laughs> that was okay. It was okay. Yeah. It was okay. Yeah. No, it sounds, I, I when I'm looking at it, it, it sort of seems like I may have seen this, but I don't really remember. But that's okay. I watched the first two episodes of American Horror Story double feature. Got it. Season 10. Have you made it to this yet? The first two? I thought we watched those together. No, that's American oh, Horror no, Story. I haven't, I haven't started it yet. Yeah, so American Horror Story season 10 is out now. And the first two, uh, there there's going to be more, maybe by the time you guys listen to this show. But there, the first two are out. So what this season is doing <laughs> is it's split into two halves is what they did. So unlike previous seasons, which told one story over the course of a dozen or so episodes, this series is going to be split in two, hence the name double feature. And those two stories have also been given names. So the first chunk of the season is called red tide. And the second chunk of the season is called death Valley. And what I watched was the first two episodes of red tide. And the first episode is called Cape Fear, and the second episode is called Pale. Now, I really enjoyed the, both of these episodes. I'm liking what's happening. Cool. I am an American Horror Story fan. I, I am not, too. I'm not a fan of every single season, of Same. course, but I have favorites. I've watched them all, and there's a couple of seasons that I would rewatch and have rewatched. So that's kind of how I feel about it, and I love that they're standalone because you can go back and you know watch the circus one, or you can go back and watch the psych hospital one, and you're and you can just watch that season and it's a fun ride and you don't have to watch 10 seasons of something to know like who everybody is. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that about American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. And I'm enjoying this because it's good. <laughs> awesome. I had no idea it was, it was out. Yeah, it's cool. So the first couple are out and the, the third episode comes out tonight, September 1st, and then the fourth comes out September 8th and, and we're off to the races. So the first episode is Harry Gardner, his pregnant wife, Doris, and their daughter, Alma, travel from New York City to Provincetown, Massachusetts. Now, what's, for a three-month trip, he's a writer, and they're just going to rent this house and be out in the middle of nowhere. And she's going to do her interior design project, and the kid will play violin all day, and Dad will uh, write the next uh, great screenplay. <laughs> That's the idea. Because, you know, his agents are like, get your shit together. Doris and Alma go on a walk one night and are stalked by a pale man in a trench coat. And I'm saying the pale man in the trench coat, not your average man, very creepy. It goes from there because that part of this is awesome. So Chief Burleson assures the gardeners that Provincetown is a safe place and that they were likely rushed by an opioid addict because <laughs> there's a huge drug problem. <laughs> but if you see this pale face man... <laughs> No, that's not what's happening there. One night, Harry goes out to the local bar named The Muse, where he meets Belle Noir and Austin Summers, a famous erotic novelist and playwright, respectively. So one of the things you're going to realize in the first, you know, 20 minutes of this is like all of your favorite people are there. Nice. You know, all of your favorite actors are yeah. represented and playing amazing characters. And I love that about American Horror Story because I'm like waiting for like, where are they? Harry is delighted to speak with the two about art and inspiration as he is spending his time in Provincetown working on a pilot. Harry returns home and the pale man attacks him. And on it goes. That's all I'm going to give you because I don't want to ruin it for anyone. I enjoyed it. There is 
creepiness. There is a bit of gore and it continues in episode two, which is called pale. And I recommend everybody give it a shot. Watch the first two episodes. And if you're not intrigued, you're not interested by then, then you're just probably not an American horror story fan. All right. All right. If anyone's been following the news on the little boy named Noah Quattro, really devastating story about this little boy. So he, Palmdale couple accused of killing Noah Quattro, their four-year-old son, have been indicted on murder and torture charges. The L.A. County District Attorney's Office announced on Tuesday. So I'm gonna I'm gonna briefly cover this case. Cool. And I just want to say that this is this is the corruption that I'm talking about. That these these parents were allowed to continue custody of their child after claiming that DCFS, uh, that they didn't trust the department, that DCFS was being biased, screaming alienation, all of these weaponized terms that narcissists and sociopaths tend to use in, in court proceedings. And what happened was we had, again, a failed system, DCFS, and the wealth, that we had the welfare system and the judicial system allow this little boy to stay in the hands of these parents. We had a little boy who literally said, I don't want to go with them. And this was his, it, it, this was talked about in, in the testimony, in the hearing. His words were ignored mm. because anytime we hear a child speak out in custody proceedings, the court presumes that someone coached him. Okay. And this is a danger when we're not allowing the child to have a voice in the court. The recanting does not equate with coaching, but with trauma bonding. So there, there's so much going on in this story. And, and there was a, um, I'm back to the LA Times, by the way. And I'm going <laughs> to tell you guys briefly why I did this. Okay. <laughs> um, there's so much in politics right now yeah. with Afghanistan, with COVID, all of that, that I had to stop the New York Times for a little while because I wanted uh, some lighter news. I wanted my USC Trojans. I wanted my LA. Um, <laughs> I wanted my LA teams, my Dodgers, my Rams. Um, I missed a little bit of light news. So I, 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 when LA, when New York Times actually asked me, I said, "Your paper's amazing. It's just too heavy right now." And so I, I'm back with LA Times. So there's a there was a whole spread last week, and I'm just going to read a couple captions, and we'll go from this. Yeah. So an investigation, his life was a tragic death, offers sobering window into how race and ethnicity, cultural sensitivity, trust collided inside the agency. The charge of bias pointed to DCFS reckoning with the history of inappropriately separating children from their parents, especially in black and brown families. Now, if, if any of you remember the Gabriel Fernandez trial that happened many years ago, the same thing happened, that he was allowed to go back to his mom, even though there was evidence that he was forced to eat cat litter, that he was being punched in the face that he was being locked in a cabinet, but without a way to effectively deal with those accusations. In Noah's case, the debate over bias paralyzed the agency, clouded the view of his family, and sidelined the staffers who knew him and his family best. The grandmother, I think it was the grandmother said, great-grandmother said, he would cry to me and tell me that I don't want to go with them. The caseworker said she eventually made an unusual step of demoting herself within DCFS, citing how very stressful Noah's case was, among other factors. DCFS did not want to deal with the wrath of these parents who were claiming and weaponizing bias and alienation. Mm. Sensing he had been coached, Johnson posed the same question. He again revealed physical abuse, then recanted because he was being pressured to not say that this boy had been coached. At the very end, I have a lot in this article that I'm not even going to go through. But what I will say is this. This little boy was uh, the weight of a feather 
when he died. He had been get, he was starved, and there were sexual abuse accusations. That's awful. Okay, and at the very end, the medical doctors admitted that they did not that they did not read. Okay, it said, asked if a physician ever had performed a sexual abuse exam on Noah, which was part of the commissioner's order to take him away. Vasquez Ducos responded, no. Both acknowledged they had not actually read Johnson's 26-page filing to the juvenile court to remove Noah despite opposing it. Stunned, the prosecutor asked Vasquez Ducos, you're telling the jury that you decided not to follow the removal order that you never read. Is that accurate? Yes, she said, after explaining, I read it after he passed away. Mm. So when I read this, and this is, again, very personal to the work that I do, and then I look at how much Britney Spears is having to go through to keep her children, it just really disgusts me. Okay. And DCFS, shame on you again. So, and judicial system, shame on you again. Thank you for that. Yeah. I want to mention also a couple of things that are coming out here. Movie-wise. Okay. So a little horror, my little bit of horror news today is a few things that are that are coming out. One is that what we do in the shadows, the season, the new season starts in a couple of days on September 3rd. <laughs> oh, God, I love that show so Yay. much. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Creep Show season three nice. is coming out the 23rd of September. So look for that. This movie, Malignant, James Wan. Looks good. New movie on the 10th. Really excited for that one. Also, there are three Shudder premieres. Uh, the Creep Show season three is going to be on Shudder on the 23rd. But also there's a movie called Superhost. And that is, let me just give you little... There's three movies that are premiering on Shudder this month in September, so I just want to throw those out there. The first of which is Superhost. With their follower count dwindling, travel vloggers Teddy and Claire pivot to creating viral content around their most recent Superhost, quote-unquote. You know how we do Superhost in Airbnb? Rebecca, who wants more from the duo than a great review. So this is written and directed by Brandon Christensen, and I like to give the Shudder premieres a shout-out because... We all love classic horror and we all in particular, of course, love 70s, 80s, 90s horror. And I and I just also want to always give voice to and a place for uh, new voices in horror so that we can we can like them. We can not like them. But, you know, this movie has Barbara Crampton in it. too. Nice. So <laughs> I'm sure she's not. I think those two young girls are like viral travel blogger. People yeah. are probably much younger. But yeah. So that but comes she's out. Classic. She's amazing. I watched, I saw Jacob's Wife and it was awesome. Yeah, I know. I haven't seen it yet. That comes out on September 2nd. There's a movie called Martyrs Lane that comes out on September 9th, which is about 96 minutes long, 2021. 20, Leah, 10 years old, lives in a large a vicarage uh, full of lost souls and the needy. In the day, the house is bustling with people. At night, it is a dark, empty a space of Leah's nightmares to creep into. A small nightly visitor brings Leah comfort, but soon she will realize that her little visitor offers knowledge that might be very, very dangerous. I have no idea if it is any good, but it creeped me out of for a minute there. Writing and directing by Ruth Platt, and it's a 2021 movie, obviously, coming out on Shudder on 9-9. And then the third one for Shudder 
is a movie called Seance, September 29th. I like a good seance, honestly. Cool. Writer-director Simon Barrett. You can tell that Shudder picks up a lot of independent movies because they're the writer-director combos. Mm -hmm. Camille, a young woman who arrives at the Fairfield Academy following one of the students' untimely and violent death. So we'll see what happens with those. But I like to shout out the Shudder Originals because I know they pick them up a lot at film festivals. And they're hit or miss, man. Yeah. They're hit or miss. But there's some there's some gems. And they're often kind of brutal sometimes. And a lot to, a lot of times very creative. All right. So let's get to... All right. Let's do these quick. Ready? Yeah. Okay. Why? Shannon. <laughs> I don't want to go quick. What? I'm scared. Name three of the first 10 celebrity guests on Scooby-Doo original series. So I've rocked my brain. I only remember a few different things from Scooby-Doo. Okay. And so I'm just going to say them. The years are not going to be right. But I didn't pick like things from 2020, <laughs> obviously. I remember Sonny and Cher being yep, on. Yeah, that's one. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just amazed at myself. I remember Sonny and Cher being on the show, and I remember the Harlem Globe Charters being on the Ooh, show. Ooh, that is actually not on here, but that was cor that's correct. Oh, okay. Because yeah. those are the only two okay. I remember. So, so I got, um, I got, you know, one. <laughs> and what, which I've seen Scooby Doo so many times that I actually remember ninety percent of these episodes. So Don Knotts, he was, he was the first, <laughs> right? Of course. The Three Stooges, I think, were actually were the first. <laughs> Sonny and Sherry, you got Davy Jones from the Monkees. Yeah. Maxwell Smart from Get Smart. <laughs> uh, I remember the Mama Cass episode because she was running the Hershey Bar Factory. I remember that now that you say or the it. Chocolate Factory. Dick Van Dyke. Okay. Phyllis Diller. She was. I remember that one. I remember Phyllis Diller. Now that you say it. Jerry Reed and Valerie Harper. Okay, and I also remember Valerie Harper. Same. All right, so you threw them out there, and I, I definitely have, like, visions in my now head. Now it's coming back to you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I remembered a couple, so in what fun. In what year did the U.S. Pr produce the first filmed version of Mary Shelley Frankenstein? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to know the year, I don't think, but I know that it was around the turn of the century, so, like, sometime between 1900 and 1920. Yeah, 1910. Oh, okay, yeah. so I got a range there. This one we've talked about already, but we'll go over it anyway. Jordan Peele studied at Sarah Lawrence College, what, where he majored in what subject? Puppetry. There you go. As shadow puppets. No, shadow. just kidding. <laughs> That's what they are in the movie. I know. They're so cool. <laughs> they're very cool. Number four. How long does a human head remain conscious after decapitation? I really don't want to know. <laughs> what did you say? I said 36 hours, but I know. 20 seconds. Oh. 20 seconds, which is still a pretty you long You like how time. I went big? Yeah, Can you did. imagine? I like, it's God. like a basket case thing. For like two days. You're Can you imagine like, yeah, 36 hours? You're, no, I mean, I knew that wasn't true. It was a joke. What is the most powerful weapon in every slasher film? The mind. Virginity. Oh, right. I knew it was a concept. Yes. I, of course, the first thing I thought was chainsaw. Well, the last question is about Texas Chainsaw. Right. Te Texas Chainsaw. What was the original title thought of for Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I don't know. Head cheese. <laughs> that made me laugh yep. a lot. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the new and fabulous things we're doing this season and we're only going to continue to grow. So give us ideas if you want to. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. Yeah.